following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Have you boys and girls ever been stung by red ants? Or maybe got into a patch of uh, poison ivy and you had poison ivy. It's miserable, isn't it? And one thing you learn then when that happens is what? You watch out for it. You stay away from it because you don't want it to happen to you again. So you become very careful. You guard yourself. You look out. Where's the red ants? Where's the poison ivy? Well, we, we do the same thing with respect to sin. Now, if you know that if you do something irritates your sister, she's going to get angry. You both are going to end up sinning and getting in trouble with your parents. So what's the wise thing to do? It's not to do the thing that irritates your sister. That's true of all of us. Now Solomon tells us in chapter 4 that we must carefully guard our eyes and our hearts against sin. He commands in 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You see, he's teaching us, the Holy Spirit's teaching us, that the heart is the control room of our lives. And thus we are to guard it uh, as a national treasure. We are to watch over it with great care because all obedience and all sin comes out of the heart. Our Savior teaches us this truth in Matthew 15. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. You must guard the heart. One of the ways then Solomon tells us just a couple of verses later is we guard the heart by guarding the eyes. And so he says in 425, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed in front of you. Now Job understood this principle. Job understood the need to guard his eyes and the things at which he looked. As he begins here in chapter 31 to depict for us his own uh, resolve to live a holy life before God, he begins here with the heart, with the eyes that guard the heart. He begins really at the place where all sin and all obedience must begin. Now, chapter 31 is the concluding chapter of these three chapters, 29 to 31, Job's final speech. In this speech, the more I've reflected upon it, Job is simply visiting the past. He first goes back beyond his trials. And in chapter 29, he uh, reflects on the blessings that God gave him and how by God's grace he used those blessings uh, to... Uh, further the well-being of, of those around him, both as a private individual and as a civil, a, a magistrate. Although he intimates there that even in the midst of this great blessing, um, the afflictions sprung on him. 
He was ambushed. He had he no, had no thought that these things would happen. So what he does in chapter 30 then, and he's not renewing his complaint. I, I more and more realize this. He's simply now explaining why uh, under his trials, what they were and why he lost equilibrium. And he lost equilibrium under his trials. In the first place, the kind of people who were attacking him. And then particularly, uh, he lost his spiritual equilibrium, he says. The reason he was complaining and crying out was because of his, uh, his physical calamities, his spiritual calamities, and he had come to a point of hopelessness. God was not answering. Where was God? And so he concludes that section by reminding us of the great mourning that he has entered into. So in this speech, he's not renewing uh, this complaint. He's simply at this point revisiting now uh, his life. And that brings him to chapter 31, where he must answer the attacks on his person. Because his friends have been saying, you can only suffer this way if God were not punishing you uh, for gross sin. And they hint around at it. They finally begin to accuse him. And, and eventually Eliphaz invents all kinds of sins that Job supposedly has committed, particularly in, with his culture, in the culture and, and with his neighbors. And, and that hurt Job. It was probably the, the sorest part of the temptation beyond the fact that he'd lost the presence of God in communion with God. And we saw that in, the, in a sense the friends are tempting him to do exactly what Satan wanted him to do. And that is turn against God. Because, in fact, in his conscience, though he knew he was a sinner saved by grace, in his conscience, he also knew that God had said of him that he was blameless, upright, a God-fearer who turned away from evil. Now, we we began with that uh, months ago. uh, And we said even there, this is the description of what a Christian is. So really what the Spirit does for us in chapter 31 is flesh out for us in Job's confession here of his conscience, what does it mean for you and me to be blameless, upright, God-fearers who turn away from evil? And that's what the Holy Spirit's teaching us now. So it's a a very important chapter. We're going to slow down a bit and look at the various aspects of Christian life and conduct uh, that Job deals with here. And so we start with these first four verses. Um, where Job asserts his integrity with respect to his eyes. And I want to show you here because we live uh, before God in the presence of God who hates and judges all sin. We must carefully guard our eyes against sin. Because we live before a God who hates and judges all sin, we must guard our eyes carefully against sinning. And we'll unpack these four verses uh, under two headings. We're going to look at uh, the resolution in verse 1. And the motivations to that resolution are behind it in verses 2 through 4. We begin then with Job's resolution in verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job was a wise man. He was the wisest man of his time. His book is in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And as a wise man, Job knew the nature of his heart. Maybe he didn't have the exact words, but he understood well what the Apostle John describes as who we are. In our hearts, we all have three things, right? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, 
and the boastful pride of life. In fact, those three things spring from Eve's original act of disobedience. For you remember, there in the garden, as Satan is tempting her, that we read then that she saw the tree was good for food. There is the um, lust of the flesh. It was delight to the eyes um, to be coveted, and it was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. And it was in that looking, you see, that I think the corruption was born. How does this sinless woman then take the fruit and eat? Well, it started with looking, didn't it? It started with a realization. Ah, that's a mighty good looking fruit. I bet it tastes good. And I could be equal with God in knowledge. You see, the, the sin had already begun in her heart. Uh, her, her act of the will was not out of a neutral heart. Her act of picking and eating came from a heart that was already now being corrupted and defiled. And we know straight through the rest of the Bible, those three lusts, the troika of these lusts, are what lie in every individual who has sprung from Mother Eve outside of the Lord Jesus Christ in His virgin conception and birth. So Job had some sense of this then. He had some sense then of what we read in James chapter 1. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Where does it begin? Where does your sin begin? Your sin begins in your heart. You are carried away by your own lust. When lust has conceived. So first there's the idea. And then there is the delight in the concept of the idea. When lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And you sin. Perhaps it's just in fantasizing. Perhaps in your speech. Perhaps in your actions as well. But when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That is the pathology of sin. That is underlying now what Job uh, says in this resolution. For Job understood something of his own heart. You see, as the Bible teaches us, we have three enemies, right? The flesh and the world and Satan. But the world and Satan have a great advantage because of the first, the flesh, which is the remnant of sin that's in us who are converted, and the bondage of sin in us who are not converted. And that flesh is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Job then understood the seriousness of guarding the eyes and the heinousness of giving them into lustful looks. And so he is aware that God hates and judges all sin. This leads then to this resolution. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Job realized then that uh, sin uh, begins... Uh, in the heart, and that lust was equal to adultery. As our Savior teaches in Matthew chapter 5, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Westminster Larger Catechism, in expounding the Seventh Commandment, uh, teaches that sins forbidden in the Seventh Commandment, besides neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all 
unnatural lust, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. Where did David's heinous series of sin begin? It was looking, wasn't it? We read in 2 Samuel, one of the saddest chapters in all the Bible. Now when evening came, David rose from his bed, walked around on the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. David had not made this covenant with his eyes. So, Job, well aware of the dangers of lust, says that he will not look on a virgin. Takes here the young woman, doesn't exclude that he would not look on older women, but obviously in any society, the young virgins are, are the pretty ones and the most attractive to an older man. And so, he says, it's not just look, the, the verb he uses is to gaze or to look on intently. And thus he's obviously talking here about lustful looks, fantasizing looks, looks that would undress a woman, looks that would imagine what it would be like to be with the woman, and then to go on to imaginations uh, and fantasizing in the heart. It's against that that Job is speaking. It's against that that he not, now makes this holy resolution because he understood the seriousness of lust as the beginning of all sin, but lust itself as sin. I want you to grasp this. It's not just the beginning of sin. It is sin. And thus, Job makes a covenant with his eyes. Interesting word he uses here. A covenant is a binding obligation sealed with an oath. It's much more than just a promise. It's a binding obligation sealed with an oath. And obviously, by the use of the term, he's talking about making this in the presence of God. And what really is interesting is that what you read in your English Bible, he made a covenant with his eyes, is the technical language for covenant making. It is cut a covenant with his eyes. The Holy Spirit introduces this technical phrase to us in Genesis chapter 15. The first covenant the Bible mentioned is the one with Noah, and God simply says in both Genesis 6 and Genesis 9, I will establish my covenant. Now we know there had to be sacrifices involved for man's acceptance with God. But now in Genesis 15, if you remember the account, God comes at His initiative, and God reveals in this making a covenant by cutting animals in half, and then by walking between the halved dead animals. Now what's the significance of that in a covenant name? Uh, we're going to talk next week about an oath of self-malediction, of self-destruction. This is where the concept comes from. For as you pass through, uh, you're taking the oath and you're saying, if I don't keep this covenant, let this happen to me. Now, what's remarkable in that covenant, if you remember the pass through those cut pieces, God in a theophany. It was the whole promise of the gospel. Right there. The only way that God could fulfill the promise to Abraham and to us as seed was for God to be destroyed. And thus the incarnation. And our Savior then passed through the, the pieces of, of the sacrifice. 
And so I think that basically all covenants, I think covenants often made between people, uh, we would be implied that they were made this way. Covenants made that man initiates. So Zedekiah made a covenant with God and uh, to return all the slaves, and the and the people passed between the pieces, and then they broke the covenant, and God pronounced great judgment on them for breaking that covenant. So Job understood the seriousness of a covenant. Thus he uses this language. And in this language, he's taking a a vow uh, to God that he uh, will um, not intentionally gaze upon a woman with lust. A vow, as is defined in Westminster Confession 22.5, is of like nature with a promissory oath and ought to be made with like religious care and be performed with like faithfulness. So you see what Job is doing here? He's binding himself by a vow not to look with lust. He understood his heart, the nature of his heart, and thus he makes this holy, binding before God resolution. Well, before we leave the resolution, there's four very practical lessons then to which I would direct your attention. The first is it's most obvious, and that is the spirituality of the law. Paul's mistake as he fleshes it out in Philippians chapter 3 was that he was blameless according to the law by the externals of the law. He was a remarkable man, you understand that, before he was converted. He was externally holy. What exposed his sin? His the heart. He was a covetous man. And as he only as he began to understand what's clearly revealed in the Old Testament, but really understand his conscience that the, the, the commandments can be broken spiritually and not just outwardly, was he convicted and uh, converted. And this is uh, so true. The larger catechism in question answer 99 gives uh, principles for interpreting the law of God. It's very useful. I encourage you to review it. Uh, and the second is that the law is spiritual. And so teacheth the understanding, will, and affections and all the powers of the soul as well as words, works, and gestures. See, the, the law comes deeply within us. And every violation, every sinful thought, every sinful fantasy, every sinful desire is a violation of the law of God. Again, the Westminster exposition of this commandment. Unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to are acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. And so, understand that when God speaks to you in the law, He's beginning to deal with the heart. It's very interesting when you look at 1 Corinthians 6, Verse 9 and in Galatians 5, the, the list of sins that if one practices, one is lost and not going to heaven. There are many heart sins in there. There are many things that could possibly be veiled. Now, no one around you would ever know of the filth that is in your mind or in your heart. And the filth of uh, uh, lust and adultery and covetousness and anger. And if they never even express themselves, you understand that Paul says that that's who you are by nature. 
then you're lost and you're going to hell. And so the spirituality of the law. Second principle that I want to drive home to you is that um, it's not simply the narrow definition of looking at a woman or a man and having sinful thoughts, but it's looking at so many other things that are part of that lust. And so again, uh, the law uh, teaches us that it's not just the specific things, but it is anything that would be connected as a consequence or a cause or an adjunct uh, to uh, what we have there. As I mentioned, the provocations of books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, all of the provocations. Um, and so you understand that this deals with pornography. Men and women. Pornography. One of the reasons in pastoral visits, we're going to ask you periodically, and as we ask every seminary student twice a year, are you having anything to do with computer pornography? You fathers need to ask your sons and your daughters. Um, and, but pornography is not just the computer pornography, but it comes to the kind of films that we watch, the books that we read, and the um, music to which we listen. Music is often designed by evil people to promote lasciviousness and lust and adultery and fornication. Uh, the type of music that will stir up sinful passions and the words of the music. And so there are many other areas here when we speak of guarding the eyes that we must guard the eyes and the ears uh, from all manner of lust as it bombards us in this culture. Brings us to a third principle, the spirituality of the law, the comprehensive nature of the law, and that is the need of mortification. You notice that right after our Savior teaches us that lust is adultery, He then adds, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It's very graphic language, isn't it, boys? Can you imagine grabbing hold of your eye and pulling it out? If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. But Christ is not teaching self-mutilation. In fact, self-mutilation does not get to the root of sin, as, as um, uh, Paul points out in Colossians uh, chapter 2. Uh, no, he's talking here about the necessity of avoiding all occasions of sin, that which we call mortification of the flesh, putting the lust to death and by putting away uh, the occasions as well. And David prayed then in Psalm 119.37, Turn my eyes from looking at vanity. Now again, we, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Leave me not in temptation, deliver me from evil when I am tempted in the evil one. But how often are we putting ourselves right in the path of temptation? You need to understand this. That whatever your besetting sin is, there are things around you that will stir it up and attack you. And they can be perfectly innocent things, not sinful things. And, but they're the things you must avoid. You don't dictate to me to avoid it, but you must avoid it. That is the plucking out of your eye. And we're so stupid and foolish when we put ourselves right in the way of things that tempt us. It might be people. It might be places. 
or occasions. It might be things. It might be a computer. It might be a smartphone. By the way, I encourage you parents, don't let your teenagers have smartphones so they exhibit a great degree of godliness. Otherwise, you're simply putting in their hands the tool of Satan. We must practice mortification for ourselves and we must enable our children to do that. Um, we tried to help a crack addict in Houston. Did a lot of things for him because we understood what would happen. When a crack addict got some money in his pocket, what's he going to do? I mean, it's just, it's a compulsion. He's going, and so we manage his money until he stole it. We took, you don't go to that neighborhood. You don't pass by that store. You don't go see those people. You don't hang around them. You keep them like the plague from you. And he didn't do those things. He fell back you know, into his addiction. I still pray for him today. Recently I heard that he wanted to reach out to me and I've waited and he hadn't. But anyway, maybe God yet will convert him. But this is what I'm talking about. This is what Job understood. He made a covenant with his eyes. He wasn't going to let the, the first step take place. Because as James tells us, the first step almost invariably leads to the second and the third steps. And if practiced, then to death itself. One other practical lesson here um, that we're probably even more ignorant of in the church today, and that is the practical use of vows in enabling us to obey uh, the Lord. The Westminster states of a vow, it's not to be made to any creature but to God alone, that it may be accepted. It's to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscience of duty in way of thankfulness for mercy received or for the obtaining of what we want. Where we more strictly uh, bind ourselves to necessary duties and to other things so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. And so we're taught here, and this is in chapter 22, that we can use vows to enforce duties and to keep us then from wandering from those duties. That's what Job did. You understand that? He took a vow. And by that vow, he solemnly bound himself to a certain practice. David does that. He, he learned. So he could write in Psalm 119, I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. Have you thought about the use of vows in your life? Now we have the major vows that we take and they're useful when you think of your baptismal vows or your church officer vows or, or your marriage vows. But how about the practical use of vows to enable you either to break a bad habit or to develop a good habit? When I pastored in Houston, there was a teenage girl came to me and she said, Dr. Piper, maybe I guess I wasn't Dr. and I was just Pastor Piper. Pastor Piper, I'm having trouble reading my Bible consistently. I'd like to take a vow that when I get home from school, I will not turn on the television until I read my Bible. I said, that's a good vow. If your father agrees, then I would encourage you to do so. Her father agreed. She did it and developed very godly habits. And that's what vows enable us to do, to break sinful habits and to develop godly habits. And I've developed the practice of using different vows in my life, um, both to break habits or to pursue good things. And uh, as I've said to some of you, I find Joe's vow very helpful in the gym. 
you don't take that second look. It's not wrong to look. He wouldn't say it was wrong to look at a beautiful young lady and admire her beauty. No, but it's wrong to take that second look. And so it's the second look that I vow not to take. If a, if a, a woman at the gym is not dressed appropriately, I catch sight of that, I turn my head away, I have taken a vow not to take the second look. And that is so useful in guarding the heart. And so, from Job's resolution, we can develop these four practical principles. The spirituality of the law, the comprehensive nature of the law, mortification of sin, and the use of vows. Now, another use in our life as Christians are motivations. We parents do that. We should. And they can be negative motivations or positive motivations. And the greater the, the responsibility, then the greater the motivation. And God so graciously gives us motivations. He doesn't need to do that. I'm the Lord God. Do what I say. But He sweetens it, doesn't He? With great encouragements. And both, again, negative and positive. And in a sense, we find both here. As we look at the motivations in verses 2 to 4, Job begins with the rhetorical question, um, How then could I gaze at a virgin? Now, you know, that is behind the resolution, but it's also behind the motivation. It's not dissimilar from what Joseph said in Genesis 39. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Well, Job answers the rhetorical question with three other questions that I want to break into three parts because in the three questions we find three very useful motivations. And the first is that if we give in to this or any other sin, now I'm not talking about wrestling with it, giving in to this or any other sin, we're going to lose communion with God. What is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Well, what is that portion? Notice he's put God Almighty, this glorious God who's exalted in heaven. And he, in Christ Jesus, is our portion. He tells us that He is our inheritance. He brings us into communion with Himself. And He dwells with us. And He he communicates with us. And He delights us with Himself. And we delight Him. David speaks of this uh, glorious communion in Psalm 73. Or after realizing how close he came to denying God, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you know that? That God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. That is our inheritance in Christ. He said to us, He loves us, that He's our Father. He's our portion. The great covenant language, I am your God and you are my people. And you are my people and I am your God. But you see, sin hinders that communion with God. Uh, not the wrestling with sin, but the, the deliberate falling into sin is going to hinder that communion with God. So Paul will speak about quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, the Spirit is a holy one. Uh, and the thrice holy God in us by the Spirit will withdraw uh, the pleasantness of His presence and the, the blessing us in the use of the means of grace and in prayer. And so Job is saying, I don't want to do this because I'm going to lose that which is most precious. That's what he's been wrestling with anyway, isn't it, in the whole book? He's lost communion with God. In his case, he doesn't know why because he knows he's not practiced sin. 
But he has lost the communion. And if you want to know how bad it is, then just read Job's grief. Uh, Matthew Henry says with respect to uh, this result, those that wallow in uncleanness render themselves utterly unfit for communion with God. Now, see, that's the practice of sin. Wallowing in uncleanness render themselves utterly unfit for communion with God, either in grace here or in glory hereafter, and become separated from Him. And then what portion? What inheritance can they have with God? No unclean thing shall enter the new Jerusalem, the holy city. This leads to the second motivation, and that is absolutely reality of judgment. Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? These words are used by David in Deuteronomy 32. Is it not laid up in store with me, God speaking, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near. And the impending things are hastening upon them. The sword of God hangs over the head of all those who practice sin. Yes, even the sins of the mind. Sins of lust, fantasy, covetousness. And you pursue those things. And what we read here is that you have only the judgment of God that's going to come against you. That's why we saw in Paul's list that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now oftentimes because there are sins of thought, we think they might go unnoticed. Right? Uh, People around us don't see them, but uh, God sees them. And as we have in the third commandment, the reason annexed, that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, uh, and uh, the Lord our God, but the Lord, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. Maybe not now. He might be living as a hypocrite in the midst of God's people with filthy thoughts and fantasies and envies and malice and anger and corruption. And you hide it with a smile and a holier-than-thou air. But understand that God is going to judge. And you're going to go to hell if that pattern is not repented and you repent and come to Christ Jesus. This leads into the third motivation. And this, in a sense, is more positive in terms of motivating us. Verse 4, does he not see my ways and number all my steps? I think that's positive. It's very useful. Uh, You boys and girls, you behave better when mommy and daddy are watching, right? Or maybe somebody at church. Uh, You maybe want to do something else, but whoa, they're watching. Understand that whether there's another adult in the room or even another child... God's watching. That's what Job is saying here. It's, it's repeated uh, through Scripture. Uh, David prays then in Psalm 139 after he's laid out the omniscience and omnipresence of God as all-knowing, all-being. Yeah. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts and see if there is a hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Yeah. This is what we call Coram Deo. To live your life with the realization that you're living under the watchful eye of God. That can be a hindrance. Should be a hindrance for sin. But it's also a great motivation for obedience. Because He takes pleasure in us. 
He loves it when we want to walk in a way as a child wants to walk and, and please his or her father. But it's a glorious motivation then that regardless of what you think, God searches the heart. That's really spelled out here when He says, he does, not, does He not see my ways and number all my steps? Not one step for which God does not take account as we live the course of our lives. And so the motivations then that the Spirit gives us guard our eyes so carefully that we might not lose communion with God, that we might not fall under His judgment, wrath, condemnation, we might live comfortably and wisely uh, in His holy presence. So Job teaches us that this is the beginning of what it means to be a blameless person and upright and a God-fearer. To make this covenant with your eyes. To know that because God hates sin and judges all sin and sees all things that you must carefully guard our eyes. And this means in the first place you live in a minefield. You need to understand that. I mentioned our lust. Uh, but there's also Satan and the world. And the world simply is a system that is orchestrated by Satan primarily to appeal to our lust. This is how we get back to that mortification. We live in a very dangerous place. A few years ago when we went to uh, Croatia, Croatia uh, most of you know I'm a, I'm a inveterate walker, and, and my wife said, you can't walk in Croatia. Why can't I walk in Croatia? Because there's mines all over the fields that the Serbs put there. I can walk in the roads and I see all these beautiful agricultural fields blocked off the hill of take. You see, the world is like that for you, Christian. Uh, yet there's no yellow tape. But it's full of minds. And what you need to do is, is seek the Spirit's grace to enable you to walk in this world and protect you as we pray. Keep me from temptation. And when I am tempted... Deliver me. Now, with regard to that, there are things that we do positively. And of course, we must always be involved in using the means of grace. You must be in the Word and prayer, uh, privately and with your family. And above all, in corporate worship. Because God has appointed these means here as the primary means that He will enable you to guard your eyes and your heart. The connection with that, uh, train the heart by what you put inside it. And so I thought of a remarkable teaching of Paul in Philippians. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, are you daily meditating on that which is true, honorable, right or just, pure, right to the point here, lovely and of good repute. Meditate on these things. Come back now to our meditation. Uh, the, the pure in heart shall see God. And we can only be pure in heart when we train our eyes and uh, seek to guard our heart. And we do so positively by filling that heart with glorious uh, revelations of God and of, of the world around us. Things that are beautiful and good and just. And then, as we keep coming back to Christ, you cling to Christ Jesus. 
because every day you and I are going to violate this commandment. We're going to be tempted to look with covetousness or lust or or wrong desires or resentment or envy or whatever. But we flee to Christ, you see. That's the difference in wallowing in it and resisting it. We flee to Him first for pardon. And the glory of the fountain of grace is that we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. But we come to Him for power. Remember, the very power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and me. That power, that divine supernatural power is yours in Christ Jesus. So walk confidently in Him. Now perhaps there's some here this morning, and as I've unpacked this resolution and motivations, the Holy Spirit has made you aware that uh, I've described who you are not. I've described you as one who was addicted to lust and fantasy. You thought maybe you're okay. Maybe your sins were only inward. Uh, But your sinful habits are there and you know who you are and you're lost. You're lost. Remain in your sins and you're lost. You're under that retributive justice, under the calamity uh, and the judgment of God. But I don't tell you that to gloat. I want you to know that. Just as your doctor wants you to know, look, you've got the serious disease. And if you don't do something about it, it's going to kill you. And my friend, you've got a serious disease that's sin. And it's killing you. And it's going to take you to hell. But I'm telling you that today because God offers you pardon in Christ Jesus. If you'll repent of your sins and take hold of our beautiful Savior, He then will pardon. God will pardon all of your sins. And God will give you strength to begin to develop the good habits. Let us pray. Oh, holy God, we thank You that in Your holiness You are gracious, You are wise, You are powerful. You teach us, Lord, how to live, how to guard ourselves. And we thank You for this. We ask Your Spirit now to bless these words to Your people in the appropriate manner. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.